We continue our reading this evening in Psalm 89, reading from verse 14 to verse 29. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favour you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision, to your faithful people you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my Saviour. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever his throne as long as the heavens endure. <coughs> Quick survey. Do we have any firstborn sons here tonight? Any eldest sons? One, two, three. Oh, quite a few. Okay, yes, you privileged men. Did it bring any special privilege or... Privileges or advantages to you? No. Okay. In some cultures or settings, you know, having a son and heir to succeed you can be the most important thing for man. Look at Henry VIII, all the trouble he went to to try and secure the throne after his death by having a son. And even in the last century, I remember with some surprise reading that the doctor who attended the birth of Prince Charles said he had never been so pleased to see it was a baby boy, the firstborn son to the Queen of England. That important, actually, that the next in line to the throne should be a man. Times have changed a bit since then, but actually at the time, that really mattered a lot. Male primogeniture. The idea, actually, that the son, the firstborn son, gets everything. The most important one. If you are a ruler or a king, having a firstborn son helps shore up the stability of the kingdom after you're gone. At least, that is how it works in theory. In practice, as Henry VIII found, it can be a lot harder. And Roman emperors were particularly bad at this. Um, they weren't always happy with their own sons, for one reason or another, so they adopted the practice of choosing this person to be their successor and adopting him and making him their firstborn son, which didn't always go down very well with their own flesh and blood, and it got messy. 
Yet the practice sends out an important message for us. The title firstborn, with its associated privileges, could be bestowed on someone as a mark of honour and prestige and power and authority. And that perhaps is how we should understand Colossians 1.15, where Jesus is given the title firstborn over all creation. And that's the title of Jesus that we're looking at tonight. The New International Version goes the extra mile in helping us to understand what this means. Some translations opt for the more literal translation, firstborn of all creation. And the NIV avoids that because it wants to avoid the suggestion or implication that Jesus is in some way part of creation, as if he's the first created being. That, after all, is how Jehovah's Witnesses would understand the text. Yet if you look at the verse in context in Colossians, the next verse effectively rules this out, because it goes on to say that in him, in Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And it follows then, everything that exists was created by him, he himself was not created. For the grammarians among you, it all comes down to understanding how the genitive works. Think of a cake for a moment. A slice of cake is part of the cake itself. But the baker of the cake, or the owner of the cake, is not part of the cake. Saying Jesus is the firstborn of creation does not make him part of creation. It means that as the firstborn son, he is sovereign over creation. And grammarians talk about the genitive of subordination. The Queen of England... She is reigning over this country. Not part of England, but sovereign over it. The same applies to firstborn of creation. Not part of creation, but having God's authority over creation. And one of the reasons why we use Psalm 89 to structure our worship tonight is because it contains a verse that's often used to interpret in cast light on Colossians 1.15. In verse 27 of the psalm, the Lord says to the king, I will appoint him... My firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And it's quite clear that firstborn is a title of honour, singling out the son of David as the one the Lord adopts as his firstborn, making him preeminent over all the other rulers of the earth. There is only ever one firstborn. And being named as the firstborn makes it clear that you are the one in charge. And when Paul, or whoever wrote Colossians, says he is the firstborn of overall creation, he's saying he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is in charge of all creation. He is Lord. Hebrews 1 2 puts it similarly, he is heir of all things. And being heir meant a lot more than just inheriting the estate when someone died. If you were heir, at which you were as firstborn, then the one named as firstborn, the one named as the heir, is invested with the full authority of the one who did the investing. If I name you my firstborn son and heir, I invest you with my authority. And it shows that God gives his authority to Jesus. Jesus represents God and exercises God's authority over all creation. The Jewish writer Philo did something similar with wisdom. 
There was a tradition that wisdom played a role in creation. And Philo talks of wisdom as the incorporeal being who in no respect differs from the divine image. For the father of the universe has caused him to spring up as the eldest son, whom in another passage he calls the firstborn. Wisdom, the one through whom God made the world. This is like the firstborn son of God, Philo says. And then I found myself being a bit intrigued by that phrase, all creation, which comes dozens and dozens of times in Songs of Fellowship. But, you know, firstborn over all creation. I thought, well, you know, all creation, how common is that in the Bible? And, you know, there's references. But what excited me, I don't expect it to excite you, uh, but I found that there is a Jewish tradition of using the phrase, of all creation, as a way of addressing God in prayer. So in Judith, God is addressed as king of all creation. In 3 Maccabees, he is ruler of all creation. In the Apocalypse of Ezra, he is maker of all creation. In 4 Baruch, he is Lord Almighty of all creation. You're talking to God, you address him, give him the title, God, maker, Lord, sovereign of all creation. Paul says, Jesus is firstborn of all creation. And to say that is to associate Jesus with the way which God is addressed in prayer. We are a long way off at this point from having a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity. But what Colossians is wanting to do is to say Jesus is as closely associated with God as possible. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn son of God. This is a very, very close relationship where the firstborn son carries the authority and the identity of the Father. Jesus is as close to God as you can get, while at the same time drawing a distinction somehow between the Father and the Son. So to reiterate the point, the firstborn of creation does not make Jesus part of the creation. He is the firstborn of God, which associates him as closely as possible with God, giving him God's authority and authority over exercised over all creation. Since it's the middle of November, I will do something that really goes against the grain. And I will refer to a Christmas carol, which we will all be seeing in a few weeks' time. It's that line from O Come, All Ye Faithful, which goes, Word of the Father, begotten, not created. And that sums up the distinction well. The language of begetting is difficult for us. Um, it's not easy to understand. Muslims particularly struggle with the idea that Jesus is God's begotten son because they want to take the language literally rather than metaphorically. What does it mean that Jesus has been begotten by God? But in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis explains it brilliantly. Let me read what he says. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. 
Or he may make something more like himself than a wireless, say, a statue. And if he's clever in, a clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It's not alive. Now that's the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God. Just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God. Just as what man creates is not man. Begotten, not created. There you go. Think of that when we start singing those words at Christmas in a few weeks' time. And of course, if we were good Anglicans and we recited the Nicene Creed from from time to time, we would know this. The Nicene Creed was formulated to counter what came to be understood as the Arian heresy, namely that Jesus was a created being, like God, but not really God, that he had a beginning, that he was created by God. And if you're coming to men's coffee morning on Thursday, and we're thinking about a few theologians who've influenced us, we'll be thinking a bit about Athanasius, who played a part in formulating the Nicene Creed. But the relevant portion of the Creed is this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. And you can detect the echo of Colossians there. Firstborn over all creation. Firstborn of God's sovereign over all creation. Through him, by him and for him, everything else was made. Of course, all this stuff about the Trinity just does your head in, doesn't it? And the more accurately it is explained, the more incomprehensible it becomes. Yet whoever said the truth is simple? Back in the good old days of Newtonian physics, we all understood how the world worked, more or less. You start to talk about quantum physics, and it just doesn't make any sense at all. But it's true. It's a more accurate picture of how the world really works. So to say that God is one, that's easy to get our heads around. To say that God is three in one, how do you make sense of that? But it's true. It's the way God is. And it really does matter that Jesus is God. If Jesus is not God, if he's just a human being like us, then how can he bring us to the living God? If Jesus isn't God, how can we encounter God through him? If Jesus isn't God, how can we truly be reconciled to God? The point of the incarnation was, as Irene put it, he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, that man, having been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. In the incarnation, Christ became what we are, so that we might become what he is. But if he's not identified with God, then we can't be brought to God through him. It's only if he's God's son that he can reconcile us to God. If he's just a good man, all he can do is make us better people. And if Jesus wasn't God's son, then his death on the cross shows us nothing of God's love. How does God, giving up a created being to death on the cross, show us how much he loves us? 
It's just God creating someone to do his dirty work for him. We see the sacrificial love of God and it's God's Son on the cross. That God himself suffers with us and for us, experiences bereavement, a sense of God-forsakenness, death on the cross. It's only if Christ is the one and only Son of the Father, in the sense that in some way from eternity he and the Father have shared a bond that is in some way like that of the relationship of love and trust between a father and a firstborn son, then for God's Son to die on the cross speaks to us profoundly of the full extent of God's sacrificial love for us and for all creation. This is God giving of himself to us and for us. So Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the Son of God. And if you encounter Jesus, you encounter God. If you invite Jesus into your heart, God comes into your heart. If your life belongs to Jesus, your life belongs to God for eternity. And as the firstborn, God's appointed representative with the full authority of God, invested with the identity of God, Jesus rules over all creation. He rules over the world that he has made. And because he is God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust him. It's a mystery. It's one that we may never be able to get our heads fully round. But it doesn't stop us worshipping him, acknowledging him as Lord, or entrusting our lives to him. Jesus, the firstborn Son of God. Lord of all creation.